The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Crucifixion with Christ includes many things. First, of course, I participate in all the benefits of his death. My sins are cleansed and I stand forgiven. I am free from the law and all its claims. I now have an intense supernatural desire to possess the holiness of Christ that I may not sin again. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the weekly radio outreach, which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we will be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled, Dead to Law, Alive to Christ. New believers in Christ will often memorize key scripture verses to encourage their walk with the Lord. A great practice for every believer. Our study this week focuses on one of those key verses which is often memorized yet often misunderstood. The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is Galatians chapter 2, starting at verse 17 through Galatians 3, verse 9. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with the message entitled, Dead to Law, Alive to Christ. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We ask thee that in this hour thou shalt effectively work in us, that from the going forth of the message from my heart, and through my voice, and into the hearts of the ones that listen, that thou shalt bless every part of this, so that thy people in this day may have spiritual food and grow in thy truth. May each one who listens say, O God, give me something from this food that is spread before me, and bless the work we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. In our study last week, we saw the meaning of justification as set forth in Paul's great rebuke of Peter, which continues to the end of chapter 2 of Galatians. And we continue now with Galatians chapter 2 and verse 17 in our rapid survey of the meaning of this great epistle. We read, But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. You see, even after God has declared him to be righteous in Christ, every believer is very much aware that he is still a sinner. If we say that God sees us as justified and as already clothed in divine righteousness, 
Do we make Christ an abettor of sin? Oh, don't let such a thought enter your mind. The only proof that salvation by grace alone is the one true way to righteousness is to live in that faith and experience divine growth produced by the Holy Spirit. Now continue in verses 18 and 19. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. Now any man who is honest with himself knows that this is true. If we set up any kind of law, either the Mosaic law or some code of our own, we can never keep it. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul is even more explicit. So if through your faith in Christ you are dead to the principles of this world's life, why, as if you were still part and parcel of this worldwide system, do you take the slightest notice of these purely human prohibitions? Don't touch this, don't taste that, or don't handle the other. This, that, and the other will all pass away after use. Oh, I know that these regulations look wise with their self-inspired efforts of worship, their policy of self-humbling, and their studied neglect of the body, but in actual practice they do honor not to God, but to man's own pride. Now the person who has trusted in Christ has turned away from self in order to be justified by Christ. If then he turns back to the law, he builds again the very thing that condemned him and makes himself a transgressor. Such a practice involves Christ in all his failures. But this is not the truth of Christian life and experience when it's centered in faith in Christ alone. Full commitment to Christ involves every phase of life and being and brings the individual believer into a wholly new concept of living. Now we come to verse 20, a verse often memorized by young Christians without any idea of the context, which brings out its full meaning. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Having turned from the thought of salvation by character, by works, by rites and ceremonies of religion, the believer is cast upon Christ. And this is no mere intellectual experience. It utterly transforms his life. Galatians 2.20 is intended to keep believers from thinking that belief in Christ is a simple thing, that if one announces belief in grace, that that is all that matters. True Christian living involves daily crucifixion. Some individuals want to be saved without being crucified but they are deceiving themselves. When we receive Christ as Savior, we are not to go on living as we please, tossing a patronizing smile toward a distant Christ and vaguely grateful that he has destroyed hell for us so that we can live pleasantly in the flesh and in the world. Yes, life must be lived in these two terrible places, in the flesh and in the world. But Christian commitment sees the believer as crucified with Christ in the world, but not of it. If there are a thousand ways to kill another man, 
There can be only 999 ways by which that man could kill himself, for no man can crucify himself. One of the saddest characteristics of our churches is the great number of partly crucified believers. With much show and vain glory, they publicly drive a nail through their feet. With mock humility and public display, they drive a nail through one hand. And then with the free hand, they point to themselves as examples of humility, devotion, surrender, and self-sacrifice. See, I'm crucified. I did it myself. But God is not interested in any of this. He accepts only that crucifixion which he himself accomplishes by counting us in Christ. In this verse, Paul sees himself hanging on the cross and then walking away alive while seeing himself still on the cross. To the Colossians he writes, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Now spiritually, that verse belongs in the middle of our text, where we read, Nevertheless, I live. Now this means that I have a divine awareness that within me there is an entirely new principle. I am now walking in the light. I see truth clearly. I recognize that there is nothing whatsoever in me that can save me or contribute to my salvation. I've turned away from law, religion, rites, ceremonies, and self as factors in my salvation. I am dead to all those things. God has put self and its efforts on the cross, and he must keep me there day by day throughout my earthly life. Whenever we become aware that the old self is rising, we must look away to Calvary and see ourselves dying there with Christ. Then we must look to the open tomb and see ourselves coming forth in newness of life. Crucifixion with Christ includes many things. First, of course, I participate in all the benefits of his death. My sins are cleansed and I stand forgiven. I am free from the law and all its claims. I now have an intense supernatural desire to possess the holiness of Christ that I may not sin again. Second, I enter into the knowledge of Christ and I enjoy fellowship with him. My heart cries out that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death. His will, not mine, governs all my choices. And then in the third place, I enter into his deep love for all the church, and I become willing to complete that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ by being willing to suffer for others. Only as we allow the Lord Jesus Christ to become our life can we know release from defeat. Sin may still touch us, grieve us deeply, and cause us to yearn for that state of holiness when sin shall be no more. But at the same time, we know beyond question that we are on an upward road. We know without possibility of error that he who has begun a good work in us will keep on perfecting it until the day of Jesus Christ. And we realize that all this is because he is within, strengthening our faith giving us his own faith 
And all this is based on the fact that he loved us and that he loves us now. Oh, how personal this becomes. He loved me and gave himself for me. And now in the next verse, Paul winds up his charge against Peter, made before all the church, with the last verse of Galatians 2. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. The New Revision translates this verse, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died to no purpose. Now it is of utmost importance that we understand Paul's use of this Greek word translated righteousness or justification, because justification is far more than mere forgiveness. The law may pardon a criminal, but henceforth that man would be only a pardoned criminal. He would never be a justified person. But in justification, God does not deal with part of a man's life and leave him to continue by his own effort. God justifies a man in the totality of his existence, from birth to death. In justification, God does not accept the best a man can do and finish by completing that which is lacking. God justifies a man in the totality of his being. He gives him an absolutely new life in Christ. And that life is God's own life, and the righteousness is God's own righteousness. When you look through yellow glass, everything is yellow. You look through blue glass, and everything is blue. When you look through red glass, everything is red. And when God looks at us through Jesus Christ, he sees us in the righteousness, the color of Christ. We are seen by God because of Christ. We are seen by God to be just as holy as Christ, just as righteous as Christ. Now, Christ had to die because such a system of justification could not be established in any other way. If such righteousness, such justification had come by the law, it would not have been necessary for Christ to die. He would have died to no purpose. Oh, but I thank God that he died for a true purpose. And you and I are part of that purpose. Through him and him alone, we are justified. Now, having completed his rebuke of Peter, the apostle addresses himself in chapter 3 to the entire Galatian church and to all the foolish, bewitched people of Christendom throughout the centuries who believe that legalism and good works are necessary to salvation. In Galatians chapter 3, in the first four verses, Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. This only would I learn of you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? Now, we must understand this as applying to us. I often say when I'm using this in a lecture in some other city, O foolish Americans, who hath bewitched you? And if it were in Canada, I'd say, O foolish Canadians, who hath bewitched you? And in any other part of the world, it would be the same. God is speaking this to us. You see, to believe in rules for the Christian life is to be foolish, bewitched and disobedient to the truth. The Ten Commandments, ritual observance, 
and the ethical precepts of the Sermon on the Mount do exist, but not as rules to live by. Rather, they are standards which God has given to show that we have all sinned and come short of his glory. Seeing his standards, we recognize that we cannot satisfy God by anything in ourselves or by our efforts. And so we turn away from self and all religion of form and ceremony, and we come to Jesus Christ as bankrupts so that we may be saved by him alone. We have to come saying, I am nothing, I have nothing, I could be nothing, I could do nothing that could satisfy thee. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Now, every believer in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord must be aware that he is the object of a great love, that he could never have found his way to God by himself. God's Holy Spirit sought us in order to bring us to Jesus Christ, who bought us and bound us in order to present us to God the Father. We began thus in the Spirit. How foolish to think that we could do anything for ourselves. God brought us to himself through the preaching of his word by means of the faith which he put within us. What folly to believe that salvation begins by faith but is maintained by works. What folly to think that God saves us, but that we must keep ourselves saved. Such folly creates a picture of God as a great and formidable magistrate who has shown a little love by saving us, but who now mounts guard over us, ready to flick us into hell if we get too close to the edge of one of his prohibitions. Such is a caricature of God, who is all love and all grace to his own. To embrace the idea of salvation by grace plus some sort of works is to lower God to the category of a woman who smiles at a man and then expects pay for her favors. God is not a salvation merchant. Love does not sell. Love does not bargain. Love gives. Now, the fourth verse of Galatians 3 is much better in the New Revised Standard Version. Did you experience so many things in vain, if it really is in vain? Paul is not talking about suffering in the sense of submission or endurance. He's talking about the wonders of the Christian life and the joys which the Galatians experienced when first they knew the Lord. For believers who lived before the New Testament was written had many experiences which God does not give to the Christian today, since we have the complete Bible. So Paul is speaking of the supernatural ministry which the Galatians experienced. He said, He therefore that ministers to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? In other words, he's describing not the condition in the last half of the 20th century, but the last half of the first century when the Bible was not yet complete. He, God the Father, who supplies the Holy Spirit to you, and does mighty works in you. Does he do it by any principle of law or by the hearing of faith? The two words translated worketh miracles are the Greek words which give us our English words energy and dynamite. Are we to expect such miracles today? Now, I do not question that God can do anything. 
or that he frequently intervenes in our lives to perform wonderful deeds for us and in us. But we must never forget that we live in a time that is very different from the early days of the church. There was no complete New Testament. A disciple was accredited by the works which God did through him. Today, a man is accredited by his faithfulness to the word of God in his teaching and by the fruit of the Spirit in his life. Thus, we do not appeal to miracles as proof of truth, for Satan can perform miracles. But Satan cannot counterfeit the word of God, nor can he duplicate the fruit of the Spirit. You did not help God to save you, and you cannot help him to sanctify you. Justification by faith, we all believe that. Sanctification by rules, what utter folly. And then Paul cites as an example one of the greatest men of faith in all the Bible. In verses 6 through 9, we read, Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know you therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. The legalists were appealing to Moses as their chief authority for faith and life. Paul takes them back several hundred years before Moses to Abraham. In his letter to the Romans, Paul devotes an entire chapter to showing that Abraham was saved without reference to any law or religious ceremony. Here, he intimates the same thing to the Galatians. By demonstrating that there was no intrinsic righteousness in Abraham, Paul shuts the mouths of Abraham's descendants so that they cannot boast in their own righteousness. By showing that Abraham was not saved by works, he proves that Abraham's descendants cannot be saved by works. By proving that religious rites had no part in Abraham's salvation, Paul destroys the teaching that these rites are necessary to the salvation of Abraham's children. To the Romans, Paul demonstrates that God called Abraham, blessed him, gave him promises, and announced that he was righteous. All this was long before Abraham was commanded to establish the rite of circumcision, and therefore circumcision had no part in Abraham's salvation. Circumcision was but the seal of the Mosaic law. It had nothing to do with salvation by grace through faith. God told Abraham to leave home and country and go out to a place that God would later give him for an inheritance. And Abraham believed God without any visible evidence. And his faith was counted to him instead of the righteousness which he did not possess in himself. Anyone who believes God's unsupported word about Jesus Christ dying for our sins and rising again for our justification is counted as a child of faith and thereby as a child of Abraham. Now, since God's plan has always been the same, the Old Testament scriptures bear abundant witness to that which God planned to do for the Gentiles as well as for the physical descendants of Abraham. This is why God said to Abraham, In thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. 
God knew that he was going to save Gentiles as well as Jews, but he was going to do it through Jesus Christ. And this is why God told Abraham about the great outreach of blessing that would come to the world through him, Abraham. God was going to save the nations through Abraham. This is the gospel. It is available to us today. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, made it available to us. The promise to Abraham is being fulfilled for all who believe in salvation by grace through faith alone. Without belief in salvation by character or salvation by good works, law, rites, and ceremonies, salvation by rules, and so on, all those who thus believed in faith alone, grace alone, are blessed by God in the same way that he blessed faithful Abraham. And our Father, we pray thee that we may look past all rules and form and ceremony and liturgy and any system of works and commandments and doing, and that we may look away to thee alone. We ask in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Not through works, but in faith alone, grace alone, are we made right with our Heavenly Father in Christ Jesus. If you would like to review today's message and additional teachings by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, you can hear these broadcasts anytime, anywhere around the globe via the Internet. The Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible Real Audio Internet website is accessible by visiting Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals online at www.alliancenet.org. Log on to this week's message entitled, Dead to Law, Alive to Christ. An audio copy of today's teaching is also available by calling us toll-free, 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, Dead to Law, Alive to Christ. Or simply ask for message number Q108. We'd also like to make available to you a complimentary copy of Dr. Barnhouse's booklet entitled, Death Swallowed Up in Victory. In this four-chapter booklet, Dr. Barnhouse answers such questions as, What happens the moment you die? Where are the dead right now? Is there such a thing as soul sleep? These and many other questions on the subject of death are addressed with biblical insights. Ask for a free copy for yourself or to share with a friend who might be going through bereavement or struggling with the issues of death. Ask for your free copy of Death Swallowed Up in Victory when you call or write. You may also request a free catalog of all of Dr. Barnhouse's booklets and audio teachings. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insights and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. If you would like more information on the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, or if you would like to support and further our work, contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103, or call toll-free 1-800-488-1888, or visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Join us again next time for more classic teaching on 
Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.